The Mourner's Bench is brought to you by Theolab, a media collective committed to creating a more candid dialogue about spirituality, culture, and the world. Learn more by visiting thetheolab.com. Welcome back to the Mourner's Bench. I'm Brandon Thomas. I'm KT. KT. I'm Malcolm David. I'm Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> I'm, I'm Pastor Sam. <laughs> on today's episode, we're talking about how I spent my early days in West Philadelphia. You know, playing on the playground, chilling out, maxing, relaxing all cool, and shooting some b-ball out of the school. We're talking about Will Smith, Janet Hubert, and the Fresh Prince of Bel Air reunion. We've also got a special altar call for you as well. But before that, listen in for a discussion about Advent, hope, and why waiting is a challenging thing to do this year. Some might even say we're talking about why we can't wait. Shout out to Martin Luther King Jr. on that one. It's going to be a great one. Are you ready? Well, let's get into it. So growing up, it was always time for Christmas once we got to Thanksgiving. That was the next thing that came around the corner. As I got an older, you know, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa. Uh, <laughs> have y'all never heard of that? I have no. never heard of no Are Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa. Never heard of Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa. You know what it is? I've been around all y'all people, David. Progressive liberal white yep. people talk about that. Yep. That's that sounds about right. I got too many of y'all in my life. That I never right. heard of it just from yeah. the rest of the world. <laughs> I was surprised to learn very late in life that there actually is something that precedes Christmas, and that was Advent. Sam? I, I'm, I know. I agree. I'm, <laughs> I'm right there with you. I went to seminary, and I was like, I'm like singing, Amen. You know, like, he ain't come yet. Like, wait. I'm like, what are you No, mean? the Lord is with us. Wait, wait. wait Black Friday has already passed. <laughs> Christ is with us. <laughs> so, I don't know. Yeah. I learned later, you know, that there's a there's a, an order to this stuff, and I was like, no, it's, it's Christmas. It's Thanksgiving. It's Christmas. <laughs> and then Easter. <laughs> and then Easter. Yep, yep. What is all this shit y'all putting in? And, and oh, then it's the 4th of July. Like, what are you doing? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> the high holy day. <laughs> David, did you have Advent? Because I think white people do Advent. No, I did not grow up with Advent. <laughs> I oh, no you Southern. Yeah, you Southern, Southern Baptist. Baptist. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I'm having a high church fit over here. Um, uh, that's <laughs> good. Ooh, that might be a new segment. Katie's high church fit. <laughs> <laughs> it only happens around a few things, but <laughs> Advent is one of them. Advent is a time of waiting, a time of preparation. In the church calendar, we look at this as the new year. So some folks will celebrate their new year's resolutions in January. But for me and for, for the church, this is a time to start new things. This is a time to prepare for Christ coming into the world again. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Do you set your own like resolutions at this time of year as well? Or do you wait until I January do, 1st? I do. Resolutions are weird for me. I usually make life changes though. I have had significant moments that I can think of in my life where this has been the start of a new way of being. Although it took me a long time to realize what Advent was, it is now my favorite liturgical season. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Planning worship during Advent was oh, one of yeah. my favorite things. Now, I'm a blue Advent person. These oh, seasons have colors. Advent. I love oh. blue Advent, but I'll mix in some of the purple elements as well because I do think Advent and Lent are linked. But that's What's, beside the oh, Wait, wait, <laughs> wait. What the hell is blue and purple Advent colors? Oh my goodness. Oh my the God. only true Advent color is purple. We will not do this today. And we, we, there... We, we, you so may in, lose a friend. In your advent wreath, you have purple. You know what? Purple. I don't trust you. I don't trust you. You ask me how in the hell I can trust you. I don't trust you. You weren't even liturgical. So purple. I 
think Brandon is having his own high church <laughs> right know. now. I know. <laughs> oh my goodness. I don't trust anyone who puts a blue candle in there. No, I still use calendar. a purple candle, but everything else is blue. Purple okay, and that's pink fine. Candles. I don't care about now that. That's as long just as you tacky. Use purple. It's not tacky. Blue and purple go together, honey. We <laughs> blue is in it. purple. We're on the same side. Okay, as long good. as you use purple okay. candles, that's fine. You know what? The perfect altarscape for Advent is a peacock feather. No one explained to me <laughs> why we're using blue and purple. Well, you don't use blue candles at all. <laughs> you only use purple candles, except on the third Sunday of Advent, which is Merry Sunday or Joy. This That's is why pink. I say it sounds like a cult. It is a cult. Yep. <laughs> Christianity yep. is the cult of cults. Yep. Am I right? Isn't purple like the royal color yes. though? Isn't like yes. you're waiting on the arrival of the, oh, the king? Oh, right? yes. like royal. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I think so why the hell would you use blue? Exactly. That is the question of the century. <laughs> I have no idea. Because the king isn't here yet. And so you're blue because you're waiting on the king to come. It's a calming color. It's a waiting color. It gives you like the spirit. Like if you're thinking about the spirit of God hovering over the waters at the beginning of creation. Yeah, man, wow, that's a reach. Just, uh, that's, that's a reach. You are a truly <laughs> Baptist preacher. What we say about Jesus. Making meaning out of nothing. What we say. That's what God did. I'm following God's principles. What we say is that Jesus was the second Adam. <laughs> so it was. it's like the spirit hovering and creating wow. again. That's, 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 that's actually one of the things that I actually think about is how do we link this to other liturgical seasons? But that's a tangent. I like blue and purple in Advent because it's pretty and I can use peacock feathers on the altar. Advent has four Sundays in it. The first Sunday of Advent is hope. What's interesting about that is that all the texts are very apocalyptic. So like the wheels are coming off everything and, and it's in the midst of that that we're talking about hope. The second Sunday of Advent is about peace and a lot of the liturgical scripture readings talk about Jesus as the prince of peace or the the bringer of peace, uh, that peace would arrive in a tumultuous world. The third Sunday of Advent is joy, and that's the pink candle. I always uh, view the third Sunday as like the Magnificat service for me. So we, we're thinking about Mary, right? And so every single year, my favorite worship service to plan is this Magnificat service on the third Sunday mm-hmm. of Advent. And it's a service typically what I've done is of, of music, art, and creative expression. Mm-hmm. It's also a really good time to let that little child who really can't sing do a little solo. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody gets a part in the Magnificat service, but it's about joy entering the world and just the music associated with that. Yeah. And we're getting closer and closer to the birth of Christ. And we're thinking about Mary intentionally. It's a moment for me where everything is about Mary. There's no mention of Jesus for me on the Joy Sunday. It's all about how hope, peace, and then soon joy enters the world through a woman. So the fourth Sunday is loved. This is one of my, this is my favorite. I tell my wife every time I preach, I end up preaching about justice. And so anytime I think about kind of the coming of God's love into this world, I think about what does it look like for those on the margins? Mm. Even in Christmas sermons, I'm preaching about the marginalized. I'm preaching about the coming of God's love through the form of justice in the world. So the first Sunday is about hope. Let's have a brief conversation about this concept, this idea of hope. What is hope in a season that for me has at least been pretty challenging? I still have family members who are coming down with COVID. And it's like every time there's a breath of fresh air and there's light, there's also something sad that happens. I had a new baby cousin to be born and shortly thereafter I had an older cousin have a positive COVID-19 diagnosis. And I think about a family member and I call someone and say, hey, how is this person? Oh, that person passed away due to COVID-19 three months ago. We just I thought you knew. So I think there's been so much sadness and so many things. And on a national level, 
what's been happening politically. We, we won't honor that person with uh, with mentioning their name today. Thinking about like John Lewis passing away. Think about Chadwick Boseman passing away. All these symbols for me that have been symbols of hope throughout my life are dying. And I don't want to say that hope has died this year, but I'm curious, how are we approaching the first Sunday of Advent? The first Sunday of Advent is usually right after Thanksgiving, which is typically one of the associate pastor preaching Sundays throughout the country because the pastors are always off. I preached the first Sunday of Advent for 12 years in a row. So I actually thought I would have an easy answer to this question because I would prepare for that Sunday. I would articulate and identify the the sheer lack of hope that was persistent in the world. And yet even in the midst of that, there's this glimmer there's this promise when you are listing off the people who had died um, when I've been sitting in this time it's harder to find those examples but I'm also thinking about this woman in my Sunday school class who it's of the election she was happy to acknowledge like things that were struggles but she said I'm pivoting away from the depths right I'm pivoting away from the places that are draining life out of me and so if I can do that if I can like Loretta pivot away from that and focus on the things things that give me hope, then it's walking with my daughter yesterday morning with her new dog while drinking coffee. It's laughing with you all when we're making fun of Brandon. Fuck you. So is it is it better if I say fuck you like this? <laughs> <laughs> does, it, does it help you stay in the spirit? <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> is that, is that, was that good job? You need him. <laughs> And I find hope when when I'm doing spiritual direction and like you're um, doing right now. Right. <laughs> I was really into that moment. Um You the one that shifted. When I'm doing spiritual direction and I can see God show up in the midst of someone's life. That's that's the glimmer. That's the small candle that's just sparked. Over the last few years, hope has kind of become something that feels a little bit more kind of dangerous and even pernicious to me. My sense is that some people confuse genuine hope with just this this kind of blissfully unaware optimism. I think hope has to start by looking the world in the eye, right? I mean, I hope has to be grounded in the hard reality around us. And I, I think oftentimes hope is used in, in religious contexts and political contexts to kind of make this really empty claim that like, oh, the, you know, the world's going to get better or better days are just right around the bend. Just hope for that. And I think we, we sometimes use hope as a means of kind of abdicating our responsibility to this moment. If I can hope in something else, then I'm not, I'm not responsible for anything. It's that something else that has to show up to, to fix the problems. And James Baldwin for me was somebody, the first time I read him, I was in college. I, I read one of his books. He offers just, I mean, this really stinging criticism of, of religion. And it's on these grounds. He says, basically, you know, religion just sort of placates us. Religion tells us, oh, well, you get to hope in something far off in the distance, uh, something that comes after you die. And so you're not responsible to this life. You're, you're just waiting it out. And Baldwin says, you know, anything that takes you away from your responsibility to, to your fellow human being is fundamentally a lie. I read that, I, man, it was probably, I don't know, 12 or 13 years ago now that I, I first encountered that idea. 
uh, and it still sticks with me. And I, I, I find myself kind of still skeptical of hope being utilized for a particular end. What gives me hope, Brandon, back to back to your question, I think number one, I, other people, Katie, what you said a, a moment ago, yeah, I, there are, are small glimpses that I get in interactions with others. They just feel genuinely hopeful. They're small and they're fleeting, but man, they're really powerful as well. Honestly, in this season, I'm hopeful because we are getting rid of Agent Orange. Agent Orange. Four to five. I'm hopeful. Uh, he's going to do a whole bunch of stuff before he goes. He's going to go kicking and screaming. But I am hopeful mm-hmm. that that era is coming to an end. Last Thursday, Georgia finished a recount and audit and confirmed with a Republican governor, with a Republican secretary of state who support Trump, confirmed that there was no widespread voter fraud or cheating and that the state of Georgia is blue. Now that gives me hope. Yeah. Malcolm, you referenced James Baldwin. James Baldwin is a saint of mine, an ancestor of mine who I carry with me. I read and reread Baldwin regularly, watch YouTube clips that are available. What I appreciate about James is he had a deeply traumatic life. And if you read anything about his story, he had, at least from the outside looking in, if I live that life, no reason to be hopeful. An abusive family member, being a black gay man and coming of age in a world that was even more homophobic, way more homophobic, well, maybe not way more, but equally homophobic, more so publicly and outwardly homophobic than it is now. Just the hatred of black people, substance abuse sort of issues. And think around the time of the assassination of King, Baldwin writes, hope is invented every single day. And so for me, I grew up in Baptist church circles and hope was always an eschatological concept, right? It was a way off, far into the future. Jesus is going to come back again someday and that's going to make everything better. Concept, an opiate of the masses, a sedative. And the only way that I can attach to hope these days is this concept of hope is invented every single day. So for me, hope is about fighting. It's about using a wide range of tools and resources to live one's life, to imagine the world otherwise. Not to imagine a day where we can go back to some time in the past or imagine a day where Jesus comes back, but to imagine my life right here, right now, where it is otherwise. It's active. It's rooted in reality. I think a challenging thing for me is that oftentimes in order for us to talk about hope, it has to be attached to some other narrative. Hope doesn't exist by itself, right? Maybe Advent actually gives us a model. I think in Christian circles, what we oftentimes do is we always talk about hope entering the world. And the assumption is always that it's going to be Jesus. Jesus is the one who's bringing hope. Every Sunday, we're getting closer and closer to a time where hope enters the world. We're getting closer and closer to peace entering the world, closer and closer to love entering, closer and closer to joy entering the world. But that doesn't necessarily have to be the model. The people who have walked in darkness, have seen a great light. What if the liturgical calendar, the Christian liturgical calendar gives us a model for letting hope stand on its own, to not baptize it in the Christian narrative? Mm, mm-hmm. Because I do believe that when we have to link hope to some other narrative, it dilutes hope of its power because we're taking it out of a certain reality. We're taking it out of a certain circumstance. Hope is invented, created, imagined anew every single day. Now, if you can do that with Jesus, that's perfectly fine. But I would suggest that imagining hope and lobbing that on Jesus, solely on Jesus, is actually diluting hope of its power. And that's not just Christianity. I think that's any narrative that you attach on to hope. When we do that with the civil rights movement, 
and talk about how these people had hope for a better world. When Donald Trump tells white folks, you can hope in making America great again, you're diluting hope of its power. It's the same difference for me. So hope is rooted in reality. I think regardless of whether or not Georgia would have turned blue, the work that Stacey Abrams was doing to organize people, she was inventing hope every single time she registered to vote and still is doing that. And not just Stacey, Helen Butler, and say Ufoy, Deborah Scott, Tamika Atkins, like black women in Georgia yep. are inventing hope every single day. For me, what they model is, is there an outcome to inventing hope on a daily basis? Absolutely. Georgia might turn blue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but whether or not that's the case, there's still good being done and hope that's being invented and creating just by the work of their hands in the yeah. moment. So I think that's what I try to commit myself to when I think about hope is, what can I do in this exact moment, regardless of the long-term outcome that helps her hope be born in the world today? Is your mic still messed up? You holding it. Like it's a subway sandwich. Is this bothering you? <laughs> You're interrupting my song. I thought you just hold it like it's, I don't know what was wrong. I was confused. Goodness gracious. <laughs> oh my god. You holding it like a subway sandwich. You are. I'm going to get subway for lunch now. <laughs> Okay. Deion Sanders can step aside. Sam is the new subway spokesperson. He's on my nerves. <laughs> In West Philadelphia, born and raised on the playground, is where I spend most of my days. Chilling out, maxing, relaxing, all cool and all shooting some b-ball outside of the school with a couple of guys who were up to no good. Started making trouble in my neighborhood. I got one little fight and my mom got scared. Said, Katie? You're moving with your auntie and your uncle in ballet. Yeah! yeah. I went to so a cab and when it came near, the license plate said fresh and it had dice in the mirror. If anything, I can say this cab was well, but I thought, nah, forget it. You're home to Bel Air. I pulled up to the house about seven or eight and I yelled to the cabin. Yo, home, smell you later. Looked at my kingdom, I was finally there to sit on my throne as the Prince of Bel Air. Y'all ain't here. Somebody has to do the dun 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 dun. Y'all ain't musical. All right. So, Fresh Prince of Bel Air, one of my favorite TV shows of all time. Time had a reunion recently. Did any of y'all watch it? Sam, you watched I, it. I, I, I watched. I loved it. It was so good. It was it was a, an hour well spent. Oh my god! I don't typically like reunion shows, but this was one of the most beautiful reunions I've ever was. seen in my life. I was sad that James Avery wasn't present, and I think his presence was sorely missed in the reunion. And I think, especially after the Aunt Vivgate. <laughs> <laughs> His presence actually was essential to that show. And so I think we, I definitely missed him. Do y'all have a favorite episode? Katie, did you, did you watch Fresh Prince? I did. I loved it, but I can't tell you any TV shows where I, my favorite show was. I can tell you my favorite episode of Fresh Prince. You did not steal my episode. I'm going to fight wait, wait. you. I'm not going to steal it's, your episode. It's a dad episode? No. Okay, no. good. That's, I figured you picked the most emotional episode because you're an emotional wreck. Every single time. My favorite episode was when I think it was Will had gotten 
in trouble playing pool and he had yes. lost like a whole bunch of money and Uncle Phil had to come in yes. and basically oh, I remember that. And, and basically pretend like he couldn't play and then like at some point in the episode he's like Jeffrey break out Lucille, Get Lucille baby. and he pulls out his own pool stick and like that thing kills was so good. these folks Did he's it? like shooting with one hand yes. I love that episode one of my favorites Katie you remember that I did remember that Malcolm what's your favorite episode man I was hoping you were going to skip over me no. I was just going to be like I yeah I love that too. I can't remember a particular episode Oh my god. I, I remember moments, not episodes. Like so the moment that I yeah, one moment I'm that I love was uh when he was teaching Tatiana Ali how to fight Will Smith. Uh Mind your business, mind your business. So she had that little twitch. That little twitch. <laughs> <laughs> like, Tatiana and Ali ain't about to fight nobody. Uh, another favorite moment was when like Carlton, I forget what had happened, but he was like crawling everywhere around the whole set. Oh yeah. When they 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 talked about it in the in the reunion, breaking the fourth wall, I think is the what third, it's called. The third the, wall. The third wall. Third one. There was another moment. I think this may have been like the very first episode when they asked Tatiana Ali to say grace. <laughs> yes. So they're worried about Will coming and the influence he's gonna have on the other kids in the house. He's kind of this rough around the edges from Philadelphia Street, you know. <laughs> and and like as soon as he gets there, he has this impact on young Ashley Banks, who's yep. probably what, 10, yeah. 11 years old. And so they have this refined, dignified family, and they're sitting at the dinner table with guests, yep. very dignified guests, and they <laughs> ask Ashley to say, Grace and she's like a a <laughs> and she starts rapping the grace and she's like thank you God for this stupid food <laughs> and we was looking like oh, shit. <laughs> love that I love that another funny episode which is actually kind of tragic is when uh, Hillary was about to marry Trevor. <laughs> And he went bungee jumping, I believe it was, to marry, to propose. To propose. And you see, <laughs> and y'all know Hillary was like the dumb character. Oh, gosh. And so you see them all watching Trevor because he was a news anchor. And he jumps and it says, Hillary, will you marry? I don't think he actually killed him. He was just like maimed for a while, right? Or no, he, he, he died. He died after yeah. the bungee jump. He you don't. Died. You don't. Bungee jump and hit the ground and live. It's TV. That's a, can happen. That's a really dark moment for Fresh Prince of Bel Air. I, I don't remember this. But they made it hilarious. They, they did. <laughs> because, so there was, <laughs> you hear Trevor, <laughs> you hear him die, apparently. Sam, I sound horrible. You hear him die, and Hillary's like, Yes, Trevor! <laughs> She's standing there in a wedding dress. Why she has a wedding dress on, I don't wow. know. I do not. This is like a dark and sordid tale. I do not remember this. But you have to watch it. It's yeah, hilarious. It's not, it's not I just looked it up. Yeah. It's hilarious. Uh, death is not funny, but in the yeah. episode, it's hilarious. Will is like, I, I don't think it was supposed to happen like that. Like, it's, it's, <laughs> I think the moment of all moments that everybody has been talking about is the moment that James Avery had with Will Smith where Will's father comes back. And even talking about it, I get so choked up. Like Will was struggling. It meant not to have a father in his life and active in his life and a father who walked away from him. And as his father leaves, James Avery, Uncle Phil comes in and he just checks on him. He, he actually plays the role of father. He is to him. And Will's sitting there trying to be tough and let, you know, as patriarchy and hyper-masculinity invite us to do, he's like, I don't need him. Like, screw him. I don't need him. He, he went over there anyways. Mm -hmm. And then he like has this breakdown. I just want to know why he didn't want me. 
and him and James Avery embrace. And it's a real moment. And I think that's what I appreciate most about the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. In the reunion, Tatiana Ali said something about, you know, people have this hashtag black excellence that they associate with Fresh Prince. The best thing I heard her say during the reunion was, yeah, the black excellence isn't the fact that it was this rich family. The black excellence is the love mm-hmm. that we shared in the film. Yeah. The black excellence is the fact that we showed a diversity of expressions of blackness. Yeah. You had jazz and you had Will, you had Jeffrey, black people with a black butler, a black British <laughs> butler. Like it, was, it was just, it was yeah. great. I loved hearing the backstories behind all of this, basically how Will was at Barry Gordy's house and yes. it was basically like, we're going to give you a show. He was literally on tour, took a break to go to a party. Yep. Came back. Jazz said he came back and was like, yo, I got a show. Like he auditioned at Barry Gordy's house for Barry Gordy's birthday for his part. Yep. And they made a show out of it. But I like the layers. You talked about that scene with Uncle Phil and Will talking about the father situation. But there was another layer on top of that. And Will talked about how he wanted James to like accept him, to be proud of him. Yeah. And in term from an acting standpoint. Because yes. Will was not an actor. At all. He was a rapper. I mean, he, he did you say, I didn't realize it. And I've gone back and watched now. He was saying he everyone's was lines. Yeah, that was so hilarious. In the first few episodes, they showed where other people would be saying their parts, and you could see Will mouthing their lines. Interesting. Because he wow. learned the entire script. He would wow. the entire script. Oh. And so, wow. but, but in that episode that you're talking about with Uncle Phil and Will, when they embrace, yes. he says that when they do that final scene and they embrace, James Avery whispers and says, "Now that's acting." Yeah. Mm. And they talk about how he. He was this support on top of acting out that scene about the father yep. you have that layer where james is in in real time yes uh being all uh, of that yes to everyone wow. on the yes. set wow. because he was that to tatiana he yep. was that to alfonso he was that to to everyone i mean and then like on top of that and there was a struggle in the scene they were struggling to film that scene yeah yeah and james avery i mean i think at least how they retell it is he is um, as Will is struggling to try to get in the moment and do the scene, he says, do it to me. So Sam, to your point about real things also happening, not just things that are in the script that we see, saw on TV, but there's a way in which, from my vantage point, James Avery served as a center to He did, and they talk the about it. They all say that in the reunion. There is no Fresh Prince without Uncle Phil, without James Avery. So we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back with our altar call because I got to put Will Smith on the bench. I want to put Tim Cook and Steve Jobs on the bench. No, you're not putting Steve Jobs on the bench for dying. Y'all let me put Herman Cain on the bench. You can put Herman Cain on for dying. I think you put the spirit of Herman Cain. Well, I'm going to put the spirit of Steve Jobs on the bench. (laughs) No, 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 but that was to mentor Ben Carson. And Steve Jobs needs to mentor Tim Cook because he doesn't know what the hell he's doing. People keep releasing the same iPhone every year. So the time is coming, the hour is nigh for us to once again come to the altar. Every Tuesday we invite, we place on the mourner's bench. Those whose souls are in need of salvation, (laughs) those whose actions and patterns of behavior have not engendered justice, those who are doing stupid shit in the world and just need to be delivered.
And so in the spirit of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, I want to start the Mourner's Bench off by placing 21-year-old Will Smith on the bench. One of the things that was both beautiful and painful to see is the fact that this young, ignorant, 21-year-old, untrained actor was extremely involved in getting this dynamic, trained black woman who was in an abusive marriage, who was pregnant, cut from the show. Because of his own shit and his own uh, grooming and patriarchy and his failure to unlearn that grooming, he had a role. In, I mean, so I'm just going to say it. Daphne Maxwell Reed, I learned. She may be my cousin. Daphne Maxwell <laughs> Reed, love you to life, but she wasn't no Aunt Viv. <laughs> the only Aunt Vivian was Janet Hubert. I mean, you had someone who could do ballet, who could do contemporary modern dance, who could sing. She, in the same way that James Avery was, was the center of that show. And they made her role smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And so 21-year-old Will Smith, I'm putting you on the mourner's bench. I'm so grateful that they included uh, Janet Hubert in the reunion. And I'm grateful that they had a moment for her to speak that truth. She said to him in the reunion, you blackballed me. Do you know what you did when you told the whole world that I was a difficult black woman? That I was an angry black woman? Janet ain't worked in years. Janet has not worked for real, for real since Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And for what she, who she was and what she was to that role and how significant she was to the first three seasons of that show, that should not be that black woman's story. So Janet Hubert, on your behalf, we are placing on the bench 21-year-old Will Smith for whatever redemption was available hmm. through that moment. I still don't think, it, unless Will is paying you, the redemption ain't <laughs> happened yet. And, 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 and I'm sorry, I gotta, let's take, I gotta take it one more step further. I'm also placing on the bench every black man who still acts in that way. Yeah, and I mm. think in some ways, it can, it's not just 21-year-old Will Smith. It's right mm. now Will Smith. Yes. Because I think, and, and, and maybe they handled it off camera or I don't know, but there was a lot of truth spoken from yeah. Janet. And, and basically, and she said, you know, I was banished. And they say, you banished me. Um, she called him to the carpet. She, she said, you know, I was in, a, like you said, I was in an abusive marriage. She said, I lost everything. Yeah. These are her exact words. She did. That she is she is face to face with Will Smith. And I noticed that in this, he listened and he would be like, mm-hmm, yeah, 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 yeah. But it took Janet actually saying, I'm sorry, before Will uttered those words to her. True. And I was just like, wow, this is very interesting. And he never addresses all of those things that she says, when, especially when she says, words have power. And when you say, I'm difficult and I'm a black woman, you know, what that did to me in this industry. I would like to hope and think that we'll... Uh, atoned and, and had some deeper reflection and conversation further than what we saw on tape. But if that was the extent of it, and that's bullshit. then he needs to go on the bench. He's the, he can either stay mean, on the bench. Right now, Will. No, I, I agree with you. I mean, but to that point, like that's what I'm trying to say. It's not just 21-year-old Will. It's what Will Smith represents that still happens in the world. Yeah. When black men, particularly, we join in white supremacy in hurting black women. Straight or gay, honor one another. What does it look like for black men in 2020 to acknowledge the historical role we have played in further subjugating black women and offer penance and repentance for that? Janet, I love you to life. You were the best thing that actually happened to Fresh Prince. James Avery was only able to shine fully because you weren't there and Daphne Reed could not take your place. If that man did not pay you, he still got some work to do. But I, but she did do her good acting because I don't think she actually forgave that man, but I think he gave her a good quarter of a meal because she did her good acting. <laughs> Who else is on the bench? I don't know their names, 
last week in Michigan. I got their names right here. Mike Shirky and Lee Chatfield. Those are the whitest names I've ever heard of. <laughs> Lee, Lee Chatfield? Yes. Yes. So we're putting Mike and Lee on the bench because after voting. We can also put Mike Lee, the senator from Utah. And Mike Lee, put all Mike's and Lee's. Put them all. Yeah. <laughs> all Every Mike's, bench. all Lee's, all Karen's, all, all Kevin's. <laughs> Except you, Katie. First, they voted not to block the vote, to, mm -hmm. to block the certification. And the public backlash was great. In Wayne County, where Detroit is, the largest the largest county in Michigan, but also uh, the largest African-American population, they voted to block certification to, to silence the voices of thousands of minority folks in Michigan. Mm. After that backlash, they reversed course. They voted to certify. Days later, after Agent I don't. I don't like saying his name, and I definitely would never put president in front of it. Just call him. Um, call, him call him motherfucker. After after that motherfucker in the White House. After that guy in the White House <laughs> uh, made a call to them. They they sent. They wanted to rescind their vote. Oh my gosh! And a few days later, they met with Trump in the White House. Like. Are you? My mind is freaking blown. This is what happens when you baptize uh, whiteness in Jesus. Mm -hmm. they, they thought that white supremacy was Jesus. They said we're gonna bury our ignorance, and then it's gonna raise three days my later. Mind is <laughs> freaking blown. <laughs> white supremacy right, rose like, again. <laughs> And thankfully, there's nothing they can do. They can't rescind their votes. The vote is certified in Michigan. But there's also plans for Trump to meet with folks from Pennsylvania. There's also, yeah, it's, it's absolutely crazy. But we put these two white folks on the bench. They're going to stay on the bench. To hear them try to explain why they wouldn't certify the vote in Wayne County. So their, their argument was, oh, the, the margin of victory was so narrow. That, that we can't possibly certify certify those results. What was the margin then, Malcolm? There were margins of victory in other counties white that they counties. did certify mm -hmm. that were more than 90% white hmm. where the margins were way smaller See. than they were in Wayne County. There's not even an attempt to make a rational argument. It's like, no, we are racist assholes. Oh, yeah. yes. That's the reason yeah. why we won't do Trump's, this. Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, came out a couple of days after that and said, you know, if you take away Wayne County, Trump wins Michigan. And so you see... I mean, yeah, if you take away like 40% yeah, of count, the vote... If you count Wayne County as three-fifths, right, right. exactly. Trump wins the exactly. election. Exactly. Hmm. I'm so mad. This is going to be such a stain. I'm sorry, I already had my bench moment, but I'm so pissed at all of these white folks who are ju justifying Trump and his actions, supporting Trump and his actions. Do you know how quickly they were calling for Hillary Clinton to concede the election when it was clear that Trump had won? They didn't give this woman 24 hours to grieve. Now they're saying there's no harm in him doing this for a little while. What? Get on the bench. Well, I was going to say, you know, this was the part of our show that I'm not sure that I thought my mom would like very much. But today before I left, she she started handing me all, like all of the Republicans, <laughs> yes, anybody who's challenging <laughs> the election, the, the whole coronavirus, put that on the bench. Yes. What I would like to more specifically put on the bench is this group of parents from Rolla High School in Missouri. They rented out like a steakhouse and held a shadow homecoming dance because the high school wouldn't do it because because yeah. we're in a pandemic. Because we're in the middle of a global <laughs> because pandemic. Because that's stupid as hell. Right. Because of COVID-19. <laughs> <Because of> COVID <laughs> so they held this event and they've, it's a, potential super spread event. They've got a number of cases no. so far. Really? I know, I know. They, I never saw that coming. No, exactly. <laughs> Plot twist. They didn't wear masks. They intentionally didn't take names. They are not cooperating with the contact tracers in Missouri. So there's no way of getting a handle on this. 
I have no clue why somebody thinks this is the right thing to do. Our, our high schoolers are missing out on something, so we want to give them this. Death. You want to give them death? <laughs> we want them to die. Right. So the quarantine section of the mourner's bench has gotten real big. It is. It is. <laughs> we got all these little high schools. We got Herman Cain's ghosts. We got Ben Carson. I hope everybody's wearing a mask. They already got it. It don't matter. Still. You still mad. I'm still mad, but I still wonder why the right people aren't dying. Um... <laughs> At least Sam is consistent. You know what? We putting the Grim Reaper that on the, the bench. Grim Reaper dad needs to be on the bench because I'm saying like, oh, this, this Republican congressman, this Republican senator has COVID. When are they going to die? When? You know, like why are die? these old grandmothers in nursing homes dying? They haven't done anything to anybody. Put some of these legislators, they need to be dead. Grim Reaper, you are on the bench <laughs> until you can figure out how to get the right people. You need the right people. Into I the depths a, of shield. I got a list. You see, I, I put them in shield. I didn't put them in hell because if they in shield, they, they, they might be redeemed. <laughs> if the Grim Reaper needs a list to start, I got a list. You got the list. <laughs> they in the quarantine <laughs> section of <laughs> the bench. I can help them get started. <laughs> So that is our uh, altar call for the day. If you, like Janet, who's Katie's mother, have people you would like us to place on the mourner's bench, send us an email. What's up at the theolab.com. We'll be happy to rant. Honey, that is a wrap for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate your ears. Friends, we're gearing up for our year-end altar call where we will have a full episode of placing people places and things on the mourner's bench for all the many ways they've fucked up over the last year. Want to join in? Send an email to what's up at the theolab.com for more information. And if you're liking what you're hearing, go ahead and hit that subscribe button and tap all five stars in the rating section. If the spirit moves you, you can even write a little review. But you can only say nice things, okay? We'll be back on Thursday with a Thanksgiving short episode where we'll talk about our favorite traditions and the things that we will not miss during this year's socially distanced holiday. We'll see you Thursday. Peace. What do you say there? Well, because we won't see you. you mm, see you Thursday. <laughs>